I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. I'll be reading Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, your word is perfect, it's pure, it is true. And we ask you that you would give us understanding this morning, that we might rightly divide your word and rightly apply it to our lives. Father, in your holiness, perfection, you have spoken to us the truth of Scripture. Refresh our hearts this morning through it. Restore our souls. Teach and instruct us in your ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we began the book of Exodus about a year ago. We reached the Ten Commandments around Easter, and we just wrapped them up last week, and we come now to this text that immediately follows the Ten Commandments. It describes for us what Israel was feeling and thinking immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's not a passage that's very difficult to understand, kind of the the main ideas here. Very simple and straightforward. After God had descended on Mount Sinai and he made that mountain basically erupt in fire and smoke and a thunderstorm came and he speaks his powerful word through that, the people see all that, hear the trumpet sounding, hear God speaking his word, And they respond with fear and trembling. They retreat and stand far off. And then they speak to Moses, basically asking Moses to be their mediator and to speak to them rather than God, because they fear if God continues to speak, they're going to die. Moses speaks to them and immediately begins his role of a mediator and tells them what God's intention is in meeting them at the mountain, exhorts them not to fear, tells them why God has come in order to test them, and testing would result in a right and proper fear of him, and that they would not sin. Even so, the people stand far off, and then Moses, the mediator, goes to that dark cloud where God is. So the 
just the narrative of it is pretty straightforward. I think the themes of it are straightforward as well. You see a God who is making himself known as he manifests himself atop of Mount Sinai in his power, in his holiness, and really in the giving of his law, his revelation of what he has given his people to live by. And so that's one theme, God's power, his holiness, his law. And the other theme is the people's cowering fear in response to this display of God's power, holiness, and law. So those are the two main themes here, but there's another theme that I think ties them together and really acts for us in one sense as the main theme that is extrapolated through the rest of Scripture. And this is the theme of Moses' mediation. You have God's power, holiness, and law over here, and you have the trembling, cowering people in fear over here. And between the two, bringing them together in a sense, is this mediator, Moses, who has been requested by the people to be the one who speaks, and they will listen to him. That's really the theme that we want to drive home this morning. And we'll get to that near the end of our time, ultimately looking at the mediator that we all need as we seek to come to God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll come in a bit, and before we get there, I want to unpack a little bit further what's happening here at Mount Sinai, where it fits into the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I also want us to try to, as much as we're able kind of step into the shoes of the Israelites to understand why they are experiencing this fear that they have in response to what they've seen and heard. And first, let's unpack this passage a little bit more. Even if the main themes are fairly evident, we can still glean even more as we slow down and consider what's happened in these few verses. This passage most notably happens immediately following the Tenth Commandment. Verse 17 is the Tenth of Ten Commandments. It ends with a period, and then it goes right into this next statement about what Israel has just experienced. Some people who um, have too much time in their hands like to play around with the Bible a little bit and do some cut and paste. So some Bible scholars who uh, make it really their living to try to be smarter than the Bible think and suggest that this passage that we've just read, verses 18 through 21, better fits in chapter 19. So they kind of pick it up and move it back into chapter 19 rather than right there following the Ten Commandments. And the reason that they do that is because in chapter 19, it's already been described that God has descended on Mount Sinai and his theophany, his glorious manifestation of himself, lit the mountain on fire, filled it with smoke, brought this electrical storm, and the people are responding in trembling fear because the mountain itself is trembling. And they think that this text just sounds better there. So they move it. Well, there's, first of all, absolutely no evidence for that text ever being in chapter 19. It's always been found here after the giving of the Ten Commandments. But I'm making a big deal about this because this is where we find the meaning of this passage. It is in the fact 
that we see Israel responding not just to the glorious manifestation of God in this great powerful cloud, but also responding to the fact that God speaks in power. Notice what their response is to this powerful display. They say to Moses, you speak to us. This is clearly following God giving the Ten Commandments. Not only have they seen him, they've heard his law. And that is resulting in them wanting to have a mediator. The rest of the Old Testament testifies to the fact that God spoke directly to the Israelites when he gave the Ten Commandments. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is reiterating the law to the generation of Israelites that is preparing to go into the land of Canaan. And in Deuteronomy 4, verse 10, he's recounting to them what's happened at Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. Deuteronomy 4, verse 10 says, How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. This is referring to the same situation that we're reading about in Exodus 20. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 4 says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Clearly, they hear God speaking directly to them. It goes on, verse 13, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Moses is going to get the job of relaying the rest of the law to the people, but those Ten Commandments were heard directly from God and is heard in the ears of the Israelites. Later on in chapter 4, verse 32 of Deuteronomy, it goes on and tells us again, actually verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, and by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire." And Israel hears directly from God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4 says, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. Or Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, 
says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, No more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. Moses is saying the same exact thing that is being described in Exodus 20. But here he's going to go on and say what they said to him. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 24, he says, And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with men and still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. Deuteronomy is just elaborating on what we see in Exodus 20. Again, Deuteronomy 9 Verse 10 says, The Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Or if we move beyond Deuteronomy, it's Nehemiah chapter 9, which says, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Israel heard the voice of God that day. They didn't just see the manifestation. They heard and in the seeing and in the hearing, it resulted in Israel trembling in fear. The experience of the Israelites, going back to Exodus chapter 20, was one that would be understandably terrifying. And they, they seem to say there in Deuteronomy, we've heard the, God, the voice of God once. It's amazing we're still alive. Let's not risk it again. And so they asked Moses to intercede for them. And the voice of God is attended by that thunder and lightning and the trumpet and the mountain smoking because the fire is on the mountain. And as they see this, as they hear all this, as they experience all this, it is a clear display of the sheer and pure holiness of the God who has rescued them from Egypt and has just given them his law. Not only do they see his intense holiness in what they see on the mountain, but they hear it in the law that is given. And their response is one of fear and trembling. The fear that they have is an internal dread of the God who has come to them. This is the kind of fear that is basically saying, stay away from me, you're dangerous. You can't get too close. They are convinced that the negative consequence of continued interaction with this God who has appeared to them is death. And not only do they have this internal fear in their heart, it manifests itself in a physical response, they begin trembling in fear. And then 
not only do they have the internal response, the physical response, but it says that they stood far off. Remember in Exodus 19, when God is preparing for himself coming down on Mount Sinai, he, he gives the instruction to set a boundary around the mountain that can't be transgressed. If it's transgressed, then it'll be death for the person who goes past it, man or animal. And so there already was this perimeter around Mount Sinai that Israel couldn't go past. But now we see in Exodus 20, after the law is given, they're standing far off. And it seems as though they think that that boundary that God gave was a little too close. Let's stand a little bit further away. That fence is too close to the action. And so they withdraw. They stand far off. And they make this request to Moses. They've had an interesting relationship with Moses so far, Israel has. Back in Exodus chapter 2, when Moses makes his first attempt to bring some sort of deliverance to Israel, and he uh, murders an Egyptian, and then he also tries to intervene in um, uh, a fight between two Israelites, the Israelites respond, who made you prince and judge over us? And they reject Moses at that point. Then Moses leaves and gets commissioned by God in chapter 3 at the burning bush to go back, and he goes back to Israel. And when he goes back, he goes back with signs, and it says in Exodus chapter 4 that the people believed, and they listened to him. But then after Moses begins his work in Exodus 5, he goes into Pharaoh. He tells uh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh rejects that and rather doubles down on the work that he gives to the Egyptian slaves and makes their work all the harder. And then the Israelites come to Moses and his brother Aaron now, and they say to him, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and put a sword in their hand to kill us. So it's been up and down for Moses and Israel. Sometimes they love him, sometimes they hate him. In this moment, following the giving of the law and the manifestation of God on the mountain, once again, they're on Moses' good side, and they love him, and they want him. They say, you go, and you talk to us. They want him as their intercessor now. It's out of the sphere that they're speaking. But what they're asking of Moses to really mediate between them and God is what God had always appointed Moses to do and to be. It's not as though they're asking him to do something that God hadn't already appointed him to do. Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, was chosen by God to go to Egypt to deliver the Israelites. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, God says of Moses, they will listen to your voice. And that's exactly what God has told, or what Israel has asked of Moses. Say, so you speak to us, and we will listen. Well, all along, that's in a sense the way it was supposed to be. They would have to listen to him. And Moses immediately begins his role of mediating as he responds to the people in verse 20. Because they're speaking out of this horrific fear that God has set out to kill them. And Moses immediately says, do not fear. 
He speaks to them as they ask, and he speaks what they need to hear. Because God's intention has not been to come in order to kill them. That's not what he came for. Moses is mediating by explaining the truth about God and his intentions. And he says, God hasn't come to kill, he's come to test. Testing by God is God determining or revealing something about his people. It's basically uncovering what's true about them. In Genesis chapter 22, God tests Abraham. Recall this when he tells Abraham, go and take your son, sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys. He takes his son Isaac, his only son, the son who he loves, and brings him up the mount, prepares the sacrifice, puts Isaac on the altar, raises his knife, and then God stops him. And it says in Genesis 22, verse 12, God speaks to Abraham, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In God's testing, it is an opportunity to reveal a heart that wants to trust and obey him, as Abraham did, or a heart that doesn't want to. And after God has given this law to Israel, it's basically a test. Are you going to trust and obey him or not? The purpose of this is to instill in them the right kind of fear. Kind of interesting, isn't it, that the people fear, and Moses says, don't fear, and then he says, but you need to fear. But it's a different kind of fear. It's the right kind of fear. It's a reverence and an awe of the Almighty God who has absolute and total claim to all of your life, whom you need to listen to, obey, and follow in all things. And that kind of fear will lead you to a life of obedience rather than sin. So we see in this small snippet of Scripture the display of God's holiness, the need of a people to have a a mediator, as well as what the mediator does. And as we read something like this, think about these topics, we need to have we need to have the realization, the conviction, that we ourselves need a mediator as well. But our mediator is not Moses. It is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the right mediator. God-appointed mediator, the one who does the job necessary, who brings us to God and, in a sense, brings God to us. But there's a lot of foolish thinking out there. Of course, there's countless uh, ways to identify the foolish thinking in our world, but this one of the ways is to think about the way the world would think about a mediator or the lack of the need for one, particularly in relationship to God. There's the folly of independence, where people think, I'll access God my own way, my own, on my own terms. I'm strong enough, good enough, I've got my own ways of doing things, and so I'm going to go to God 
my own way, and they effectively deny the need for any kind of mediator. They have it all themselves. Or there's the folly of indifference, which is to say they, they think God's going to accept me as I am. God's a forgiving God. God's a loving God. He's just going to take me however I am. And uh, I don't need anyone between me and him because he's good with me. It's almost an apathetic kind of approach. Or there's the folly of pluralism, the kind of approach that says, well, all roads lead to God. There's many different ways to him. Some need a mediator, some don't. Some access him directly, others don't. All rivers run to the ocean, all roads lead to God. Or there's the folly of resignation, which would say, there is no way to God. He is unknowable. Might think, if there is a God, I have no way of ever knowing Him. There's the folly of thinking there's no access at all. Maybe people who think there is a God, and in some sense I want to know Him, but He has not made a way for me to know Him. These, of course, all fall outside of the truth of Scripture. There is a mediator. And a mediator is one who mediates, of course, between two parties to remove a disagreement or reach a common goal. It's a word that's really infrequent in the Bible. It's not used very often. 1 Timothy 2.5 is probably the main verse regarding it. But as one theologian says, while the, the word is scarce, the concept is prevalent in one of the dominant conceptions in the Bible. Job gives us the illustration in Job 9, after Job has undergone his afflictions and is wondering, why has all this horrible things happened to me? I'm innocent, but if I were to try to plead my case with God, I'd basically be found guilty. And he elaborates on this, and he says in Job chapter 9, verse 32, Regarding God, he says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Job gets corrected at the end of the book of Job, but in the moment he thinks there's no one between me and God, and if I were to ever stand before him, I would lose. Israel is recognizing in these moments after the law that they need someone to speak to them about God. And in a greater way than God providing Moses for Israel, God has given his son for the world to be our mediator. And this has always been expected, and I want you to look at a passage in Deuteronomy 18, and this is why I think that this is the main thrust of the passage in Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy 18 is a fairly well-known passage where Moses is telling Israel, one, that he is a prophet, but then there's going to be another prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses speaks to the people of Israel. He says, The Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's exactly what Israel said they would do to Moses. We will listen to you. You speak to us, we will listen. Now Moses is saying, you shall listen to this prophet who's going to come after me. And then he begins to remind them of what happened at Sinai, the very text that we're referring to in Exodus. He says in Deuteronomy 18, 16, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There is the expectation, just as Israel received a mediator there in Exodus 20, that there will be another one who will come, to whom God will give his words, to whom Israel needs to listen. And this, of course, is referring to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This Jesus is the one who went to his own mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, appeared in glory before his three disciples, and then from heaven and from a cloud, there was a voice, it says in Matthew 17, 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is the mediator who has the very words of God that we need to listen to, the very fullest revelation of God, the full display, so much so that when you look at him, you see the Father. I want us to spend our remaining moments to try to sense a bit of the, the desperate need that Israel had in those moments, following the giving of the law. We, of course, can't really replicate that Mount Sinai and the, the display there that happened. Um, not going to put on sound effects and make rumblings of thunder come out and you know put on some fire out here for you to look at or some whatever. That's not going to replicate Mount Sinai for you. It would just be this kind of fraudulent exercise that really doesn't do anything other than maybe stir up some emotions for a moment. And while we can't replicate the physical displays that happen at Mount Sinai, we have to remember that not only was Israel trembling in fear at the manifestation physically on display, they are also trembling at fear, perhaps even more poignantly, at what they heard God speak to them in the Ten Commandments. And that we have preserved in absolute perfection. And while we may not hear God's speak, voice speak to us literally from heaven, we still have his word kept and preserved for us perfectly so we know exactly what he said. And as we hear him speak to us from the pages of Scripture, we still have by the Spirit the potential to experience something of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his perfection. And that's who our God is. He is holy. He is absolutely perfect and without any taint of sin. 
He is light and there's no darkness in him at all, totally righteous. He is so righteous that he cannot tolerate even the smallest of sins. And he is so perfect in justice that if he doesn't punish sin, he would be unrighteous. All sin in the world, from the smallest to the greatest, is ultimately against this almighty God. If it's not against God, it's not sin. Because God has created us, designed us, given us a purpose for living, we owe him from our very birth absolute and complete allegiance from our first to our final breath. But every last one of us has rebelled against him. Every last one of us has broken his law. We've disregarded him as the complete sovereign ruler of the universe and tried to usurp his throne by asserting ourselves as the one who is going to be in charge. And although we'd like to think of ourselves as good people, we must stop doing that. We must stop comparing ourselves to others nearby when we can look at them and think, well, I'll never do that, or I never did that, I'll never be like them, and I'm better than them. Or even when we see somebody who's better than us, we think, they don't deserve to be better than us, because I'm better than them in this way, and I should really have what they have that's good, and they should be worse than I am. So even in some twisted way, we can turn somebody who's better in us than us to somebody who's worse than us in a flip of a switch. This is part of the reason why the Ten Commandments have been given to us so that we stop comparing ourselves to other people and let the holy, righteous standard of God be placed before our eyes and we see ourselves in the mirror of his word. It sifts us. It shows us God's standard, God's ways, and it compares us to that. I want to take the remainder of our time and sit under this law for a moment of Exodus chapter 20 and revisit what we've spent so many weeks considering. And I want to do it in a personal way by asking you a series of questions related to these texts and I'm very much helped by Will Metzger's book, Tell the Truth, as we consider these questions. But put yourself for a moment before the mirror of this word in the first commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. God demands perfect allegiance. Jesus says that if you love father or mother or even your own life more than me, you are not worthy of me. Have you ever put anything in your life before God? Do you always have God as first place in your thinking, affections, and actions. Second, God demands that you think of him rightly. No graven images. Following the Christ of the Bible and not your own imaginings. Do you refuse to try to make God according to your own liking? When he is different than you want him to be, do you try to change him in your mind? Do you always reject worshiping him in ways that he has not prescribed? Do you worship him? Do you love the revelation of himself in Christ and scripture? Do you love his word and meditate on it day and night? Or is time in the scripture just a hiccup in the day to get to the things that you really want to do? Third, God demands that we take him seriously 
and reflect his ways in our life always. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have you ever flippantly talked about God or used his name as a swear word or in a thoughtless manner? Does your life reflect his name, his character, his ways to the people and world around you? When people look at you, would they think that person belongs to the God of the universe, God all-powerful, almighty, all-gracious, all-good, all-righteous? Fourth, God loves diligent work and yet always wants us to know that he is the one who provides ultimate rest. You need to keep the Sabbath. Have you always worked as hard as you can in whatever task you have done for the glory of God? Have you relied on God to be the God who gives rest and refreshment and trusted his promise to give to his people eternal life? Do you eat the bread of anxious toil, trying to scrape every inch out of every day for your own personal gain? Do you trust that God will provide all that you need? Fifth, God loves his people to respect authority, honor your father and mother. Have you always obeyed your parents in everything as unto the Lord? Has your obedience been right away all the way with a happy heart? Do you respect and obey all other authorities in your life in a like manner as far as they don't make you disobey God? Six, God loves life, you shall not murder. Have you respected the gift of life God has given you and not wasted it? Have you ever murdered anyone? Have you ever had hateful thoughts toward anyone or taken pleasure in seeing your enemy or people you don't like suffer? Do you always think of others as more important than yourself and seek their good? Seventh, God loves purity and gives the good gift of sex to husband and wife, shall not commit adultery. Have you ever practiced any kind of sexual impurity with your body or your mind? Do you look at pornography? Have you ever had sexual desires toward anyone who is not your wife or your husband? Eighth, God loves generosity. You shall not steal. Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you? Do you always respect the belongings, rights, and creations of others and being completely truthful and fair? Have you worked diligently so that you may be generous to others? Ninth, God loves truth. You shall not bear false witness. Have you always been completely truthful? Have you ever slandered anyone, spoken wrongly about someone? Have you ever lied to advance yourself or lied to bring someone else down? Have you always told the truth in every situation regarding every person you have ever known? Tenth, God loves contentment. You shall not covet. Have you ever greedily desired anything that wasn't yours? Have you desired the looks, abilities, or status of others? Have you always shared your possessions and yourself with others? Are you always content with your possessions and situation? And two more that I think are pertinent to this because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God loves humility. Are you teachable, compassionate, forgiving, willing to yield to others, a servant of others, desiring to see others succeed, Willing to let others be first and yourself be last? 
Do you rejoice when others do well? Do you care when others are hurting? Do you receive criticism with an open heart? Are you quick to admit fault? God opposes the proud. Do you think you know everything? Are you constantly critical of others and look down on them? Must you always have it your way? Must you always prove that you are right and others are wrong? Are you demanding, self-protective, easily annoyed, easily angered, easily offended? Do you think of yourself or others more often? Do you desire success at the expense of others? Are you jealous when others are recognized over you? Do you allow other people to really know who you are? Or are you wearing a mask? Is it always someone else's fault? Are you quick to defend yourself when criticized? Are you constantly thinking what other people think of you? Do you try to maintain a certain image of yourself? Do you work hard to convince others that you are better than you really are? Do you have a hard time saying, I was wrong, please forgive me? Israel stood at the foot of that mountain and heard God's voice call out his commandments for his people. There is no way that anyone who heard the voice of God following that thinks, I'm good to go. After that, you tremble with fear and you look for somebody who can do something for you. You try to find somebody who can help you. And for them, it's Moses. For us, it's the one better than Moses. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who speaks a better word, the one who offered his own blood, the one who every word that he spoke was truthful and right and kind and loving. We find ourselves after an evaluation like that so corrupted to our very heart that it's like it's a very spring of death coming from within us. And we need somebody who can wash the deepest parts of us. The mediator that God has provided for us can do just that. He's the one who can make us white as snow. If you're left to yourself and your own resources, then on the day of judgment, when God looks at your life and there's no one else around to help you and heaven and earth have fled away, and it's just you and God, and he exposes your heart, and every thoughtless and careless word and deed is brought to the light, and every impure thought and every evil deed is exposed, and you have a mountain of sin to account for, what then will be your plea? I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is the blood of Jesus Christ alone that intercedes for you the righteous one of God. Moses, when the people were standing far off, went into that dark cloud where God was. Jesus Christ, 
our mediator, hung on that cross while others stood far off. And there the darkness of God descends again. And he alone is there to bear the guilt and the curse due us that we might be set free from the curse of the law. And in great victory after Jesus died, he burst from the tomb with eternal life to give to all who would call on his name. And so, brothers and sisters, we take a moment and we put ourselves under the law, but we must not stay there because Jesus left the curse in the grave. It's been dealt with, it's been buried, it's done with. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, all that guilt that you experience thinking through how you have failed at every point of the law of God is set on Jesus Christ, placed in the tomb, and it remains there. And the living Christ is in heaven for you, interceding for you now, calling you his friend. That's our mediator. If you don't have him, you have absolutely no hope. But if you have him, you have everything you need. Christ is offered to you today if you don't know him. Call on him. Call on him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, to take the moments and to stare at your law is terrifying. To know that we have broken it, we've broken it badly. We give thanks to you, the God of salvation, the one who has given us your Son, not begrudgingly, but out of love, for it's you who has loved us and has given us Christ. We thank you, Father, that through Christ we can be brought near to you, but we no longer need to be held far off. But we have access to your very throne, not a place of judgment for us, but a place of grace. Blessed be your name, God. You're the God of all grace and all mercy. We thank you for having mercy and grace on us sinners. And help us, Father, to cling to Christ, trust him and him alone. And Father, I'd also ask that you would get rid of any ridiculous notions that being freed from the curse of the law would let us live however we want now. But rather, Lord, would you lead us into paths of righteousness as we follow our good shepherd who walked in the example for how we are to walk. Help us, Father, to honor you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.